got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. Today we're joined by my hilarious and delightful friend, Baruch Porras Hernandez, a writer, performer, illustrator, curator, organizer, host, and stand-up comedian who has performed all over the U.S., fancy universities, strip clubs, sexual health clinics, and your dad's back porch. I'm over here just describing a blowjob, and they go, oh, Baruch is a risque sexual comic. I'm like, am I a sexual comic? But before we get into that, if you like what you've been hearing on What the Folk and want to help boost our signal to everyone you know, especially that guy, you know who I'm talking about, you can uh, write us a glowing review and give us all of the available stars on iTunes, Uh, subscribe on your favorite platform, and share this episode on your social media of choice. Thank you so much. Now let's get this episode started with one of Baruch's poems called The Trees They Hate the Birds the Most. The Trees They Hate the Birds the Most by Baruch Borras Hernandez. No one knows this, but the trees are all bitches. And since they can't move, they hate everything and everyone that does. The trees have the ability to talk to each other, but all they do is sit around talking smack, saying hateful things about women and fat boys. If the trees could vote, they would vote against marriage equality. The trees don't give a fuck about your dog. The trees think you're a pathetic moron. This world is wasted on you, they say as you walk by. She doesn't really love you, they say as you carve your girlfriend's name onto their skin. The trees hate squirrels, chipmunks, and birds. They hate the birds the most. Fuck you, bird, they say as a bird flies by. They all die, a tree says, as a bird makes a nest in a small hole within its trunk. There is this one tree that once a year has nearly 45 nests within its branches. It wants to commit suicide, prays every day that lightning will strike it so it can burn to the ground. The old trees remember a time before humans when a tree could just watch bears fuck in peace. The ancient trees are patient, willing to wait. Know that the walking bloody bags of bacteria will eventually destroy themselves and give the earth back to the trees where it belongs. But until then, the trees will continue to be dicks and make jokes about your mother. Baruch, you must tell me about your purple glitter. It's so fascinating. (laughs) Well, the purple glitter I got from an organic compound in West Virginia 
It's only made by vegan lesbians who are immigrants. And that is the only <laughs> glitter that I use on this chubby, chubby face. That is, uh, that is both body positive and uh, ethnically positive. When I apply <laughs> it to my face, I whisper the words, sustainability. Fair trade. Well, excellent. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad to be hanging out with you. I feel like it's been a long time. It's been forever. Um, One question. Oh wait, yeah. this is recording the audio, right? No one's gonna yeah. see what I look like. So I put pants on for nothing. Your pants optional. Like everyone on this podcast is pants optional. I basically, you know, it's, I feel like we're in the apocalypse. Everyone should just do what they feel is the best thing for them. Uh, so it's so good to have you with us. Thank um, you. I'm happy to be here. I've been following some of your just pandemic activities, like tons of awesome live streams. The Jane Austen fan fiction was absolutely a, an evening maker for me. The Shipwreck. Shipwreck, yes, that's a fun show. I missed that show. We were supposed to do another one, and then things got like even more chaotic out in the world so we decided to like chill for a bit do you want to tell the people who aren't me who are listening about it and what it is and why it's so amazing because i fully fell in love with it of course yeah shipwreck is an incredible show that was created by amy uh stevenson who is a writer who used to live in san francisco now she lives in san uh, new york her and Casey uh, Childress, her and Casey created it over, they were both drunk. They were both writers. They're both, you know, those people like, like I'm pretty okay, smart. They're like super smart. Those writers are like way too smart. And so they were like, let's create a show where we pay writers to write fan fiction erotica based on the characters of a classical novel. And so they take classic novels by like Dickens or Jaws was a novel. So they'll take, you know, Stephen King stuff. They'll take uh, really classic novels. They'll pay six writers to write some really delicious and hilarious porn based on those characters. And they wreck it. They take a classic and they wreck that shit with some dick jokes, some vagina jokes. But what I love is that it's all like a little bit intellectual. We 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 love comedy, but we're all about the literature and how funny literature can be and the ways that it takes us in different journeys. They'll take a classic novel and they'll just destroy it. Like we we did a we did an Ayn Rand novel. I forgot which one we did. They all sound the same. It was either The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or whatever. I don't know. It was one of our novels. A lot of people hate that writer and hate that and the movement that she started that led to the tech movement and to led to what happened to San Francisco. So it was fun to watch writers write some like really funny shit, not just making fun of her characters, her work, her legacy, her ideologies. And it was just really fun to read that out loud. So I get paid to read those stories out loud, like a radio play to a live audience. And we used to do it monthly in San Francisco. There's a New York one, the the New York one, the voice of that is Cecil Baldwin from now, Welcome to Night Vale. So the guy from uh, Welcome to Night Vale is the voice of the New York shipwreck and i'm the voice of the san francisco shipwreck and now we do it once in a while virtually fantastic it's such a it was such like a wonderful like burst of comic genius in the middle of like these dark weird times i felt like it did such an amazing job like just like you do an amazing job of combining like uh the intellectual with the profane and like and with the comic 
that like that's that's your art I mean that's kind of how I think of is like your your poetry and your illustrative work is being both like super smart and super profane and super funny I just want to know more about like how you have arrived at this wonderful crossroads yeah well um a lot of people can can figure this out right away especially if you would come to shipwreck a lot of folks were like it sounds like a radio play because you you don't really do voices but you do like i can tell which character is which even though it's one person but i'm not one of those like character voice actors i I don't really do impressions i'm bad at impressions i'm bad at accents whenever we do an english uh, piece at the beginning of the show, I'll say something like, and by the way, I don't do English accents because fuck colonialism. And also <laughs> they're hard. People sometimes come to my shows, they'll be like, wait a minute, that guy's cheating. He used to be an actor. And I'm like, oh no, you got me. You got me. Failed actor turned writer, stand-up comedian, and basically anything people will pay me to do, I'll most likely do it, unless it's porn. My mother would rip my skin off if I ever did porn, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, but I was an actor for a long time. I, I used all those skills in my performing. Um, but even before I was an actor, like when I was young, I was, an, I was a painter. I was an artist. I wanted to be a visual artist when I grew up. But then I met boys and was like, oh, no, I'm gay. Damn it. And you couldn't be, you know, gay and Mexican Catholic world that I was in. So I wrote a lot of poems to boys I was not allowed to touch. So that's kind of how I started writing poetry. And even when I read some of my young, uh, older poems, they're all in like code. And I try to use different euphemisms for the boys I had crushes on at the time. One of my oldest books of poetry, so it's like written basically completely in code because I was so scared of people finding out the obvious, because everybody knew, everybody knew, like, uh, you know, people would see me walking a mile away and they would be like, oh my gosh, look at that Mexican homo over there, thinking he's in the closet when he's clearly not. Um, So I was a poet and I was very shy. And then when I was 16, I got, I had a crush on the lead actor of all the plays at the time. And he invited me to audition for a play with him. And I was like, anything for you. And so then I got in and I was trying to pull out of the play because I was shocked. I was like, no, 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 I was just a scene partner trying to help him get in the play. But this, you know, teacher saw me who, for who I was. And, you know, she's, she was a wonderful teacher. One, like she did everything, like lead the choir, direct the plays, direct the musicals. So she was like, you know, if you do this play, you can spend a lot more time with Brent. And I was like, got that. Why would I want to spend time with him? It's not like he's got beautiful blue-green eyes that remind me of the sea. Um, (laughs) So I was like, fine, I guess I'll join the play. And then she said, you know, you have a great voice. You should join the choir. We need another bass. And I was like, I don't sing, lady. You know, Brent's in the choir. If you join choir, you could stand next to him and he can sing into your ear the whole evening. And I was like, lady, uh, how dare you? And of course I joined the choir and that's how I started with acting. So I was an actor for a long time. I then majored in theater, unfortunately, or fortunately at Sonoma State. Um, But the whole time I would be like, and even even after I graduated, I moved to San Francisco, uh, worked as an actor for a long time, was doing pretty okay for an actor with like no money. Uh, That's something I always try to, when I talk to people out there, I mostly just want to talk to my people. Those of us who are trying to be artists without rich parents, 
my words and my love is to you, beautiful people. <laughs> I'm not saying fuck you to the artists whose parents pay their rent. You guys are fine. And even if I said fuck you, you're going to be okay because your parents pay your rent. And if you break your leg in an accident, they're going to pay your bills and that's fine. So me saying fuck you shouldn't feel bad at all. But yeah, uh, folks whose parents don't pay their rent and are trying to be artists, yes, it sucks. It fucking sucks. But if you keep going, eventually not that much happens because the world is still nicer to people with money, but you can still have a good time. So I was an actor in San Francisco. I was doing pretty okay, like, you know, getting cast here or there, wherever I could. I And everybody was like, why don't you move to New York or LA? And I was like, do you want to pay for that? Because I'll do it. I will leave tonight. And then they'd be like, oh, no, I just want to give you useless advice. I'd be like, ah, got it. Useless advice. So yeah, I was an actor for a long time, but I would come home after being in a play to write. Like I, that never left me. And I eventually got to a point where back then, and still unfortunately to this day, the theater world wasn't very welcoming to people that just, you know, weren't blonde, blue-eyed Adonises and, um, or skinny people. It was a very like, you know, we only have two molds. If you don't fit these molds, we don't know what to do with you, which is what I was told a lot in a very polite white area way at auditions like well you're you seem like you're funny and you're charming and you're a good actor but we just don't know where to put you <laughs> i would be like how about this play and i'd be like no <laughs> that or i was too fat even though i weighed like 191 pounds at six foot three that's pretty skinny but not in the, the theater world i just got really tired of that i like you know theater companies back then would do a queer play or a latino play maybe once every three years and so what the fuck was I supposed to do in the meantime, waiting for this one? And then even if you audition, often you would lose that role to a white guy with a tan. So, uh, and I'm not saying I didn't get, I got, I got cast pretty often for someone at my level and at my age at the time. But it was like, I was playing a lot of like Middle Easterners. <laughs> I was playing like uh, Iranians. I was, I was playing like monsters, butchers, goblins. Uh, but I never in my 10 years of working as an actor got to play a Mexican. I, I played some gay guys. I, play, I had some small roles, but it was very like gay guy number two says like, what's up, girl? Then like walks off stage. And a lot of the meteor parts that would really change your career were not just they just were completely like they didn't exist for me back then. So I was getting really tired of that. And then one night I was in a play called Blood Wedding, one of my favorite plays uh, by Garcia Lorca. We were doing it at Shotgun Players in Berkeley. If you don't know about Shotgun Players, they do incredible work and they are so awesome. Go see their place. They're, they're, they're one of the ones that were actually like trying to change while all this shit was happening. And then this guy came after the show and he was like, did you know Garcia Lorca was a poet? And I was like, yeah, duh, we're, we're in this play. We, we, we know he was a poet. And he said, well, I run the Berkeley Poetry Slam and I'd love to invite you to come. And so all the other actors were like, Poetry Slam? That sounds boring and lame. And I went, because I was bored. My actor friend that was with me at the time, he was like, hey, you're always writing poems in the back of the theater. Why don't you sign up? And I was like, me? No, I could never. And he signed me up without my permission. And I didn't have anything there because I wasn't ready. So I wrote a poem to Taco Bell because I love Taco Bell. And I went on stage and I won second place. <laughs> and back then, second place won you $200. So I got off stage with my $200 and I said, this is more money than we're getting paid for the entire run of Blood Wedding because that's how bad 
it was back then. I mean, I don't know how it is now, but if you weren't part of the union in the Bay Area, you could be in a six week rehearsal with a like five weekend run. And at the end of that, they give you your hundred dollar check. That's insane. Like, that's the, that's that's the world insane. of theater. That's so demoralizing. So, oh, but but it was legal. Yeah. It was legal. And that's what considered normal back then. So I looked at my friend and I was like, I just made $200 with a three minute poem I wrote. And so I went back every uh, Wednesday and just, I never won first place. That's something I tell everybody. I featured at slams all over the country. I got flown to Canada to do slams uh, and got paid. But in an actual competition, I've never won first place. Kind of because I don't really care about competitions. I kind of really just want to have a good time. But that started my, my switch. Like I went home. And I, the electricity that you feel from an audience because of something you wrote and you performed was such a bigger thrill for me than what I was feeling. I mean, and acting is amazing. Like acting is, I still love it. Maybe one day I'll go back to it. Maybe I'll play an old gay uncle in a sitcom, hopefully cross your fingers one day. And it's hard. Like acting is really hard work. Like a lot of people shit on actors, but one of the reasons I left is because, oh my God, it was so much work. I just remember going like, wait, we are not getting paid enough for this. Like the costumes and the where your light is and the cues and you have to stand in the exact spot that they tell you or the set beat's going to cut, cut your head off when it moves. Like everything you have to think about and memorize your lines at the same time and your co- co-actor's lines. It's, it's a lot. But I got home and I, I just was yeah. really hungry to write my own stuff and perform my own stuff because I was tired of performing other people's words. And I was also tired of just being on the sidelines, you know, because back then I do have very light skin privilege. I, you know, I, I was born in Mexico and I'm an immigrant. A lot of people ask me if I'm biracial and I'm like, no, just Mexican. Both my parents are Mexican. I have in- indigenous grandparents on both sides. I just came out looking like this. So I, uh, things were, have been easier for me. What's funny is that even though I had that, I still didn't look white enough to get those lead roles. I got tired of that and I made the really painful decision to move towards something that I thought would pay me more, which is weird, which is people didn't believe me at first after I left. They were like, wait, you're making more money as a poet than as an actor? That doesn't make sense. And I'll be like, doesn't make sense to me either, but I love the paychecks. How can you argue? (laughs) (laughs) And also when I was an actor, you could get cast in something and then not work for weeks and weeks and weeks and months if you just didn't get a part. When I decided to make, try to make money as a, a performance poet or spoken word artist or whatever you call it, there was more room to grow. There were so many places to even go do poetry back then in like the late 2000 you know like 2007 was when I made 2008 was my last professional tour as an actor and then 2009 was my first feature as a writer uh, at the Berkeley Slam actually which was I'm always be grateful to them because out of nowhere I walked in and uh, (laughs) the guy who was in charge of the Berkeley Slam back then was like you know what I think you're ready to have your own feature you should come up with your own chat books and sell your books and I was like nobody's gonna want to buy my little poetry books and he was like you're gonna sell out you're really funny and you're really electrifying on stage and 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 I had never gotten that feedback in theater theater at the time was like 
your trash, your shit, your expendable. <laughs> we will destroy your mind and you better do what the director says or we're firing you. If you complain about racism or sexism or homophobia, you're never working this town. It was this weird switch. Then, you know, into the, in the poetry world, people were like, not only do we like you, we like your words. We think you're funny and we want you to keep doing it. Here's some money. Mm-hmm. I was like, bye mm-hmm. theater world. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that is in the mainstream now I first heard that on Slam stages. Slam does not get enough credit for how it has changed the culture and the way people interact with art now. Um, a lot of people hate it for that as well, but everything from the... I had never heard of the word consent in the theater world. It was like, whose hand's going to grab my ass tonight? And it was fun, and it was fun, you know, but... Uh, I heard the word consent on a slam stage. I heard the word appropriation on a slam stage. I heard uh, fat phobia. Like I never, body positivity. I heard poems about all of that stuff on the poetry stage before I saw it in the mainstream. Like people like Sonia Renee Taylor, who now runs the Body Is Not an Apology and is a best-selling author. Like she, I met her at a poetry slam in DC back in 2010. Um, Andrea Gibson, who is now and celebrated, you know, all over the world as this incredible genderqueer performer. I met them, uh, you know, in the slam sta- uh, stage. Sam Sachs is one of the top poets in the world right now. I met him at the San Francisco slam. Um, Dinesh Smith, another like powerhouse of just incredible uh, work. Same deal in the slam stage. Uh, one of the best books ever to come out recently Actually, I have it right here on my pile of books uh, by Ocean Vong. Uh, Ocean also comes from the poetry world, and he wrote a novel, and On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous is one of the most celebrated books out there right now. So that's kind of how I sque- you know, squeezed into that. I saw that there was not that much limitations with it. With theater, there is so much like, no, you can't do that. That wouldn't work in a play. With poetry, it's like, yes, that's a poem. I'm going to just... Scream the word apple 12 times. That's a poem. People like it. Cool. If they don't, oh, well. And also I felt like I could be a lot more honest with my work. And then what what started happening was a lot of people would just get mad. (laughs) Like people would be like, I thought this was a poetry show. I laughed the entire time. And I would be like, is that a bad thing? And they were like, well, I came to see poetry, but you made me laugh the whole time. And I would be like, (laughs) do you want your money back? I just, I I was like, I can tell you a a sad poem about my mother if you want to cry too. And they were like, well, I just feel like it was, they they would get so confused. It was like, well, poetry can be funny. One guy said, you should just fucking do comedy. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I will. When I was an actor, I, inside, I also just really wanted to be a comedian I'm one of those people that has too many dreams. And my mother is like, you know, that's always, that's going to hurt you. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to have a good time. So (laughs) one night I was leaving, I had left a poetry show and I was drunk. I don't drink anymore, but back then I loved to drink. So I was leaving a poetry show in the mission and I was walking down Valencia and I see these like five hot bro dudes also drunk. And they like jump on me. They're like, it's the guy, you're that guy. And I was like, yeah, it's me. Keep hugging me. So they all take turns <laughs> hugging me and they like lift me up at one point and they were like, dude, you were so funny. That comedy show we just left was hilarious. And they were taking selfies with me. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like that comedy show you were at that comedy show was so funny. 
And I said, that was a poetry show. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, I'm a poet. I'm not a comic. And they were like, oh, man. They got so sad. They like stopped <laughs> hugging me. They were like, poetry? It's as if I said, I touch dudes' penises with my tongue. They all were like, what? No. And they got so like, upset. Also, they were drunk. That they just kind of like shoved me away. And they were like, we, we got to go, bro. We got to go. And I was like... Maybe I should do comedy. So I started going to open mics, uh, specifically at the Brainwash Cafe, May It Rest in Peace, run by Tony Sparks. And eventually I was invited to perform at Margaret Gomez's comedy bodega at Esta Noche, the historic Esta Noche, also May They Rest in Peace. Uh, that's what it's like being a performer in San Francisco, people, humans, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, almost everything you love will one day disappear. <laughs> like, even your most beloved venues. Yeah. Um, so that uh, really helped me to get more gigs. I'm always super grateful for Marga Gomez. She's an incredible Dina, a queer comic, actress, writer uh, here in San Francisco. And, uh, and then someone told me, you know, you can't do both at the same time. What? They said something really dumb. They were like, someone who serves two masters will always leave both of them unhappy. And I said, that is really <laughs> creepy. Uh, what, uh, what about fuck those two masters? I'm going to serve myself. You know, but people did tell me, like, you know, if you are trying to be a writer, poet, comedian, and illustrator, and solo performer at the same time, you're never going to excel in them. And I said, cool, uh, that's not my goal. When I was an actor, I was very depressed and I was having a very bad time. My rule when I turned 30 was... I'm going to write what I perform and I'm going to have a good time and I'm going to get paid. So that was my, my three rules. It has to be written by me. I have to have a good time, whether it's poetry or comedy, whether the theme is funny or sad, uh, I need to be enjoying myself. And that rule has helped me keep doing this, even when it's really, really difficult and when it's been really, really fun. Because I knew there was going to be years, there, and there was, there was years where it was like, oh, I had one gig the last three months. And then there was months where I would have like 10 gigs and I would ask myself, how am I going to do this with a day job? A lot of folks are surprised that I have a day job. Just for your podcast listeners, last year I made enough money that I had made more money as an artist than I had ever made in my life and more money than the first year I was a manager at one of my last jobs. That's how little they were paying me, like a year, a year. And that's how little they were paying me. But that's like, I was like, oh, I made a good chunk of change as an artist. Still, for San Francisco prices, I made nothing. <laughs> I like coughed. And so people, because they see me do so many things, because they see me performing left and right, they're like, wow, that guy's got it made. I, I don't. San Francisco is very expensive. I could live off my art if I lived in Wyoming, maybe, or Iowa. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here, even with my day job and the money I make as an artist, I'm still below the poverty line. So also, I like going to the doctor. For years, I tried. Right, um, right. I'm yeah. just going to cross my fingers and hope I don't get sick. And right. I did that for a while. And I just, I couldn't do it. I, I left my one of my day jobs in 2013. And I was like, going to be a full-time artist. And I was able to do it. Mm -hmm. With my art gigs, I was able to pay my rent. And I was able to pay my phone bill. Uh, but then I was like, how am I going to get toothpaste and apples oh, and you know, <laughs> like money for BART? And so I had yeah. to, even though I was trying to be a full-time artist without a day job, I was working for 
the go game, uh, playing a pirate, you know, <laughs> playing a depressed uh, mm-hmm. architect. I was working at Phil's Coffee at 5 a.m. Uh, at one point, I started working at a sex club uh, at night. So I would go, I would work That's at Phil's from like 5 a.m. to, you know, whatever, 12. And then I would work at a sex, then I would go do a show. I would perform somewhere at a comedy show or a poetry show. And I would be like, I can't drink yet, y'all. I have, my shift starts at 10. It's a 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift. They would say, oh, God, where? And I would say, a blow buddies. Come on by. Get a blow job if you'd like. I'll be working the coat check. Uh, but then I got this dick job, which is uh, I work for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation now. And they uh, really wanted to hire me. And I said, if you're going to hire me, you have to understand that my art life comes first and y'all come second. And you just have to deal with it. And they were like, okay. So it's been a great five years that I've been uh, hanging out with them and also being a a full-time artist. Wow. And that's amazing. I really appreciate that, like, like the multiplicity of all your work, especially as someone who has, has like grappled with that in my own, what of my website? Hmm. What shall I call it? Emily Yates does everything. Let's do that. And it was basically, I was like, am I going to put my photography here? My music? Like I had just started playing music, you know, writing. And so, yeah, I, you're right. Like if you're focusing on doing it for the sake of doing it, because it's what you are passionate about doing and what, what makes you feel fulfilled as a human, you know, you, you can, and you kind of have to do a bunch of different things because we're not one dimensional people. If you like it, like I I have had friends in the past who have asked me for advice and I I gave them, you know, or, or told me how I got to where I am. And I'm like, well, this is how I got there. And they've tried it in there. And I was like, is it working? And they're like, no, I hate it. And I was like, oh, then stop, stop doing it. (laughs) If you hate Mm -hmm. it, don't do it. And they're like, but I'm an artist and I have to suffer. Oh, no, no, you don't. I mean, if you have to suffer to paint something and you're going to sell it for 10 grand, yeah, I'll come slap you in the face. But if you're <laughs> suffering and not making any money, our society isn't going to stop being capitalist overnight, maybe not in our lifetimes. You have to survive as a person. So whenever an artist calls me a sellout, I'm like, who pays your rent? <laughs> you know, they're like, <laughs> I do. Yeah, but like if... Your apartment burns down. What would you do? Well, I'd go live with my, I'd live in my dad's cabin. I'm like, oh, your dad has a cabin. Mm. <laughs> well, my dad would fly me to my mom's house so that, you know, I could tell her my house burnt down. Wow, your dad can fly to your mom's house. My parents have no money. I help them out. So, yes, you could call me a sellout for trying to make money however I can as an artist, or you could also fuck off. Um, I feel like being able to do, a bunch of different stuff has helped me stay afloat because sometimes I'm not going to get all the comedy gigs I want. And luckily, uh, knock on wood, I've been able to work it in a way where my, when my comedy gigs die down, my poetry gigs kind of go up, which is lovely. And then when that dies down, I'll get like a solo performance gig or I'll get an illustration gig or commissions. Now the problem that will happen and has happened is I'm really bad at saying no And I've ended up with like days where I had two commissions due and I had a poetry show to do that day and a comedy gig that night. There is a danger of that happening. And there's a danger of like pissing everybody off if you don't turn in your, you know, deadlines on time. And if you have to piss off the organizer and beg them to let you perform early so you can leave and go do the show that you're supposed to do at 10 p.m. later that night. So you do have to be careful with that because... 
just because I'm a fun, loud guy does not mean I don't like quality. I want to put 120% in every gig that I have. And that happens a lot with when I organize a show, I'm very uh, upfront with performers. I need you to stay the whole time. Why? So you can hang out with us. Why? Because we like you. (laughs) Wait, what? Because when I curate a show, most of the stuff I curate, uh, for example, when I started Donde Esta Mi Gente, I started it because I was tired of being the only Latino in the lineup. Uh, The art world in San Francisco was very white. I would be in shows with six white people and me, or six white people, one black person and me. And then I would get to a venue and I would be like, and because I, I speak Spanish fluently, it was my first language. And in my brain, I'm like, ¿Dónde están mis amigos? ¿Dónde está mi gente? I would mm-hmm. say in my head, I would look for the Latinos. I'd be like, is there a Latino in the audience at least? There's no Latinos backstage. <laughs> I got a little tired of that. And I started ¿Dónde está mi gente? To just do Latino performance showcases. And also give us space to hang out. Uh, and I include that in the payment most of the time. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, wow, you're, you're paying us a lot. I'm like, yeah, because I want you to show up early and bond with people and make connections and hook each other up with gigs. Like if we're not helping each other out, like, you know, who the hell is going to help us? So with stuff like that, I I do invite folks to stay longer, to bond with each other, to get to know each other's work. And, you know, sometimes if I'm in a regular comedy show with like 12 white straight men doing rape jokes, as soon as I'm done, I leave. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't really need to stay here for the rest of this. And I pick my battles. Uh, Sometimes I'll say something if someone asks me, just depending on what the situation was. I was at a show once where the guy before me did a joke about all the, like, all the, all the men that have died of AIDS, just kept making these weird, like, homophobic jokes. And so then I went on stage after him and just made fun of his entire set. <laughs> I said something like, it's really sad that all those gay men have to die of AIDS so you could make a really bad joke that didn't even land. I mean, that's more of an insult than dying of AIDS, ending up on some (laughs) stupid piece of shit's homophobic joke that wasn't even funny. It's surprising when you when you find it in the Bay Area. I I grew up in the I moved here when I was nine. So I forget there's still conservatives that live here. I forget that there's still Republicans that live here. Um, And some of them try to be artists. It's really weird because I'm like, wait, wait, wait. How did you get in here? Who invited you? here yeah i used to run uh an uh, an open mic called the san francisco queer open mic i ran it for seven years and our rule was we did believe in freedom of speech but we also believed in not pissing i was like look we believe in freedom of speech but we also believe in you not pissing off our audience like either way because sometimes you would get liberal folks who would do these like screaming angry pieces and just would leave the audience feeling like they'd been violated. And one of our things was like, if your person you're yelling at is it in the audience, you're just spewing hate into the audience. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, and same deal with the other with the other end of the spectrum. You know, if people came and said anything racist or homophobic or or transphobic specifically, especially transphobic. Yeah, me and my co-host would have like we would be like, look, if you if we it's our show, we run the show. Sure, freedom of speech is real, but if you piss us off, we'll stop you. And several times we had to just because like, and often it was a gay guy who would be like, I don't get it, I don't get trans people. And then me and my co-host Blythe would have to get up, just politely take the mic away from him, and be like, we don't get you. And and we'd be like, if you're pissed off. 
go home and write better jokes or go home and write better stories. Or if you want to stick around, we will take the time to explain to you why you're being a piece of shit. And then we'll invite you next week, next month, because it was monthly, to maybe try another approach to whatever it is you're trying to do. Sometimes it wouldn't work. You know, I'd get some straight ass, usually a comic screaming at my face and, you know, leaving. And so, you know, one guy tried to throw a chair. And uh, But one time a guy came and he did all these like dead hooker jokes, which did not go well there because, uh, you know, that's not cool. And then he did like my girlfriend's so dumb jokes. And I was going to stop him. But that one particular time, my co-host and I were like, you know what? Let's let him die up there. The audience booed him, like threw coffee at him. <laughs> and the poor guy was not like adult enough to take it. So he got off stage and he was like shaking. And I just went up to him and I was like, hey, hey, this is what happened. This is why what you said isn't funny. And that might work in a normal comedy venue and might even take you farther, even though they weren't that funny. But uh, I invite you to come back and just write funnier jokes that aren't shitting on someone. Because comedy, it, even if it was once about shitting on someone, this crowd doesn't really like you to shit on anyone that's already getting shit on. And that's kind of mm-hmm. how I explained it to him. And I thought I was never going to see the kid again. He came back next month and had all these really funny jokes. And he did really well. Like, people clapped for him. And he was like, I'm going to come back every month because you guys were so nice. And I was like, yeah, like, just don't be a shitty person. You know, like, think about who you're... If your jokes are about shitting on someone, are you shitting on someone that's already marginalized? Are you shitting on someone that needs a fucking break from the world, treating them like shit, but they come to this open mic to just be around queer people and women that aren't going to make them feel shitty for like two hours. Uh, and now he's like, we're like, we're like frenzies now. Uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. That was something really great that uh, we were able to do at the queer open mic, uh, which unfortunately had to end because... Things come to an end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was kind of curious to hear a little bit about, um, you know, how you've had to cope with this pandemic as a performer. So maybe some of the creativity you've seen, some of the opportunities. And then I also really liked a lot of the stuff you had to say about class and art. So I would love to talk about class and art and how to, you know, encouraging people who maybe don't have this, that material basis that their dad can just pay their rent, like how to just get out there and create so. Yeah, I mean, with that one, I I used to say, which I still do, like, you can do it. Nothing will stop, should stop you from doing what you want in your art. But now that I'm older, <laughs> like, it's easy to say, you can do it, you can do it when you're in your 20s or early 30s mm-hmm. and have the energy to try to work two jobs and be an artist at the same time. And now I'm just very honest with people. It fucking sucks. <laughs> like, it can get to the point where it will exhaust you greatly. I know it's aged me a little faster than I probably should have. I'm only on this earth for a certain amount of time. I want to grab it by the balls and make my experience here what I want it to be, whether I have money or not. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I, I have. I'm really lucky that I had parents who... They didn't discourage me from being an artist, but they discouraged me from suffering. So when I was younger, I would be like, hey, I'm, I'm good at this art thing. And they'd be like, yeah, we know. And I would say like, isn't that great though? Aren't you gonna like, shouldn't I try to do this professionally? 
And my parents would be like, oh, should you, though? <laughs> like, my dad tried to tell me. You know, uh, I, he always got his metaphors and his sayings and his stories wrong. But he would say, look, <laughs> you know, I came to this country so I could work really hard as a janitor so you could be an engineer or a businessman. And you're going to work so hard at being an engineer or a businessman so that your son, my grandson, can be a poet. Told my dad, you know what? Fuck your grandson. I want to <laughs> skip that whole bullshit and be an artist <laughs> and a poet now. Why should I... <laughs> Excuse me, Dad. You're saying <laughs> I should just move my happiness aside for your grandson that doesn't even exist. But <laughs> I understand now, especially now that I'm about to turn 40, you know, I don't think my parents are trying to just, they love that I'm an artist. They're surprised I've stuck around this long <laughs> doing it. But they just, they, you know, they're artists themselves. My, both my parents, my, both my parents are writers. My mom was an actress and a singer back in Mexico. And they know how hard it is to be an artist when you have absolutely no money. And so they didn't want me to be unhappy. They didn't want me to suffer. And I told them, I'm going to be even more unhappy if I don't do this. It was a good thing that they kind of were like, okay, well, we're just, we can't stop you. You know, it's part of that immigrant thing where like so much of what we do here is, okay, here goes. Like, you know, when you're an immigrant kid here, your parents didn't go to school here. They don't know how school works. So you literally are thrown into the water without knowing how to swim. And you have to kind of teach yourself how to swim, you know, because you'll go home and you'll be like, hey, they said I should do this. They said everyone knows how to do this. And my parents were like, we don't fucking know how to do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we also don't speak English. And so that was my experience as a student. That was my experience as a university student. I was the first person in my family to go to university here in the U.S. And that was my experience as an adult, as, a, as an actor. And unfortunately, it's been my experience as a writer and comedian, just kind of figuring it out on my own without, not just without any guidance, but without any financial guidance. But yeah, I tell folks that, you know, you can do it. You just have to, you just have to understand that it will come with a bunch of sacrifices. And sometimes that's going to suck. But when you get your wins, they're going to feel so much more amazing. And I have noticed that when I've had my little wins or when I've gotten my little grants or my gigs that have paid me well, to me, it, it just means so much more than my colleagues who, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that much to them or it does or it doesn't, who knows? I don't care. But to me, it means like a lot because you have kind of worked on it on your own. When you, when you get your wins, it's going to be even much more uh, meaningful, I feel. But 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 also, it's uh, I don't want to like sugarcoat anything for people. Being an art, and even now that I'm getting older, being an artist full time with a job full time is starting to. I've had to pause. Well, years ago, I got a grant from the San Francisco Arts Commission. It was like my first huge grant to do my solo show. And instead of being happy or enjoying it, I automatically started panicking. Mm. I started. I just started going like, oh no. Now I have to do this and now I have to get a venue and I have to get a director and I, I have all these deadlines with this grant and I started panicking and I started having these like, because I was exhausted from my day job. I was exhausted from the gigs I'd had that week. Okay, if you're a poor artist, you have to be a really good friend <laughs> because <laughs> if your parents aren't going to help you, you really can't do anything. You know, I, I talk a lot about how I've done this by myself. I don't have rich parents. 
but I've had a lot of friends and that is something I mm-hmm. tell a lot of poor artists like, yes, you don't have rich parents and you haven't married that rich doctor, but you have to not be a shitty person. <laughs> you have to be a great person who is a great friend because you're not going to get anywhere without your friends. Like so much of what I've been able to do uh, in my life as an artist has been because I've had really awesome friend support. The friends that aren't, aren't mad when you invite them to your yet another show, those friends that are willing to invite their friends and their neighbors and post on their own Facebook pages that will show up to your solo show for the first time, those are the ones that you need to be super sweet to and kind to and not treat them as mm-hmm. fans. Uh, treat them. And what I do is I, <laughs> I have on my planner, once a day, I try to call one friend. Just surprise them mm-hmm. with a phone call because email and text get us so, bleh, you yeah. know, and I, 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 feel, so I feel like a, unless they like I have a lot of young friends who if I call them, they would be like, what's wrong? Are you dying? Why are you calling me? I hate phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a millennial. We don't do this. You know? yeah, don't make like, me panic. Ah. Yeah, so my millennial friends, I'll send them a funny meme or I'll, or I'll give them a heads up. Like if you're free today, I'd love to hear your voice. During this pandemic, uh, before the pandemic, I would try to meet up with people, even if it was a quick coffee once a day. Um, but my Gen X are friends and older. They love a phone call. You know, they, they, <laughs> yeah, I'm just drying my hair, you know, I'm just yeah. <laughs> having a, you know, my, my afternoon coffee. They, they love a phone call. Yeah. So yeah, folks that are poor, be a really good friend and let people help you. Mm. Don't take advantage of people. That's nobody likes that. But in my experience, most of the people that take advantage of people aren't poor artists. They're just assholes who have learned that their daddies have become rich by taking advantage of people. So they're going to ask you to do work for them for free. Uh, pay your friends. That's another thing. Yeah. Not only should you mm-hmm. let your friends help you, but also if your friends are talented, give them the gig, you know, invite them to perform with you. Like, so yeah, help your friends, uh, let them help you, mm-hmm. give them the gig, <laughs> hook your friends up with the gig. If someone accuses you of nepotism, be like, I don't know you, get out of my way. Just kidding. Just, you know. <laughs> the world is a nepotistic place. Like, this well, is yeah. Arts, and also, you know? <laughs> yeah. But also, like, you know, people, I, I curate for KQED and Lit Quake and uh, a bunch of other shows. And, and people often accuse me. They're like, well, you already booked this person. Why did you book them again this year? Because she wrote new shit. Also, oh, she's yeah. good. And also, she's going to keep getting better. Like some of my friends haven't gotten that much better. So yeah, I'll book them once in a while, but my friends that are continuously working on their craft and continuously either writing new good songs or new good poems or new good jokes. Yeah. I'll book them again if they got new stuff and if it fits the theme I'm going for. Sure. But also I love meeting new artists and new performers and hooking them up with a gig. And, And when I say gigs, I mean like, a hundred dollar poetry gigs, not like giant jobs. Or- yeah. But it, it's really, that's so true though. Like one of the best ways to like keep your own work moving forward and, and keep your community strong, but to like help other artists that you believe in, you know, amplify their voices. You know, that's one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is say like, who are the people that we know whose voices we want to amplify because we believe in what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're showing up in the world And the more we can do that, you know, the more it's like a feedback loop that happens. You know, you book somebody who's an amazing performer two years in a row because, you know, they've got new awesome shit and that is going to keep them creating new awesome shit 
that's a huge, I mean, especially in this, you know, capital centered way of life that we have, it's like one way to exist in it about being like, okay, like we realize we need money, like money is not obsolete yet. So like, how can we share it with each other instead of stealing it from each other and competing for these scraps? Right. Like creating those communities, those like kind of self-sustaining communities, I feel like is that way you can kind of create that little island within capitalism, at least somewhat. Someone I work with a bunch, uh, Keith Hennessy is a performance artist. He calls it the, the, the same 20 queer $20 bill that we all just keep donating, donating to each other's GoFundMes or each other's like uh, Kickstarters for our projects or for our medical bills because, you know, who hasn't had to do that? I mean, I, I haven't yet, knock on wood. Those are the people that I feel come help you when you need it or when your project needs help. Usually it's, yes, strangers will help you once in a while, but it's really the friends in your bubble and your community that uh, we'll come and throw you that extra five or 20 bucks, you know, and, and I would always say like, you know, we'll take your $5 donation if you can afford it. If you can, we'll take your $20 donation. And if you work for the tech industry, we'll take your $100 check uh, tonight or your $200 Venmo donation. <laughs> you know? A lot of times I got a lot of, yeah. ga- a lot of, I got a lot of extra funds that way just by guilt tripping people yeah. who work in the tech industry. Yeah. Like we're taking socially progressive donations and especially during the pandemic, it seems like, you know, certain people are just going to keep getting paid and certain people are not going to have the chance. So when it's like, this it's mutual aid for artists in a way when you're like, all right, there's limited gigs and we're just going to kind of pass them around because we all know that we need to perform and we need to keep working on our craft. As a performer, you can only work on your craft by performing. And so, you know, you're giving people a chance to keep getting better. And, and before we get like too like, um, down the rabbit hole of that, which we totally could in so many ways. I would love to know like more about how the San Francisco and the Bay Area poetry scene is sort of keeping each other afloat throughout this pandemic situation. Yeah. Well, well before I forget it, uh, something that my mom taught me at an early age was something like, any food you make will taste better if you share it. And that's mm-hmm. something that I've always... Like, even if you have a slice of pizza, it's going to taste better if you give your friend a pepperoni or whatever. The examples were mostly with Mexican food. But (laughs) but at the beginning of the pandemic, I felt very fortunate to still have a day job. Uh, Even though I I run events for the San Francisco Queer Open Mic, I thought I was going to get fired. I was like, well, I'm going to get that pink slip since I run events and events are illegal right now. And then I thought, oh, I need to beg them to let me do virtual events. I, they're a sexual health clinic. I worked for the, for Strut, which is their sexual health clinic of the foundation. And I was like, well, I'm not an essential worker, so I don't know if they're going to keep me around, but I pitched to them. I said, look, we should stay connected to our community in one way or another. So you should let me do virtual events. And they were like, let's try it out. So that was great that I was able to keep my job, but it was really awful to see so many of my friends, most of my friends who were living off gigs, uh, they were trying to do full-time artwork and then maybe like one server gig on the side, or they were trying to be a full-time comedian with one like waiter gig on the side. All of their gigs not only disappeared, so did their day jobs. So what I started doing, it was like once a week or, or, or every couple of days, 
I would just donate to people's Venmos or send them money or send them food. And it was something I started kind of just randomly, but then it, it felt like really great to be able to help uh, people that way. There was also like, I was like, oh, well, what else can I do? You know, because it was uh, unavoidable. Like every time I would open Facebook, I would hear some good friends like fear. Like you could hear the panic, the fear in their, their like just the fact that like, they hated that they had to even write that Facebook post. Like, you know, where they were like, well, hanging by a thread, might not be able to pay rent, eating top ramen, you know, and just being like, mm-hmm. no, let me buy you a pizza, you know. Uh, and so I started doing that a lot. Like the first half of the pandemic, I was doing that a lot and also encouraging others to do it. Like I had a list of my friends with tech jobs or my friends who hadn't been laid off. And I would be like, Hey, we're all putting 20 bucks to this guy's, you know, Venmo account because he's going through a rough time. One of my friends is, uh, yeah, he was about to be, he was about to lose his place. He had like no, nothing in his bank account. All his gigs had disappeared. He was going to have a great 2020 as an artist. He's asked me not to say who he is, but I was able to raise $3,000 for him in one day just because I just texted a bunch of people. I was like, hey, if we all put in 20 bucks, we're going to be able to, you know, so I, I did a bunch of that at the beginning of the, uh, of the pan, well, the, around the first half of the pandemic. And I feel like that helped with my own mental health. I'm not saying that you should help people to make yourself feel better. But hey, if that's one of the side effects that, you know, I would say go ahead and and do that. And um, I feel the poetry community, they worked really hard to try to stay afloat. And I feel a lot of them switch right away to this Zoom world. So many of us had to learn the hard way how to do Zoom shows. I was in a bunch of comedy shows where people still were like doing the show like this couldn't see half their face so they were in the dark or you could see their kitchen was really really gross (laughs) or some of the older folks who were like did I unmute myself yes you did oh wait am I still on mute you you you, you're not on mute anymore okay good I'm on mute and then they would start brushing their teeth and you'd be like what's going on why is this happening (laughs) like there's so many of those at the beginning that it was kind of cute, but also scary, but also so (laughs) important because I feel the first half of the pandemic, we had no idea how long it was going to last or Mm -hmm. how many people were going to die. So it was really odd to see folks exhausted and stressed and angry, just relax for an hour. And that was lovely. Like I I love those early shows where you could see everyone it was before people just got tired of it and would turn off their cameras and pretend to listen. But at the beginning, I, I, I remember doing shows where you could see everyone and everyone was really hungry for that connection. So I thought it was great that the poetry community just decided not to stop, probably because, you know, we all are attention whores and <laughs> love to keep working no matter what. The show must go on. But mm-hmm. I, I feel it was also very brave of them. Because I know a ton of writers who just would not do it. They just were like, not being able to be in front of the audience, I know scared a lot of comedians as well. I know like four or five comics that are 10 times funnier than me, uh, better careers than me, but just did not want to do a Zoom show. And not for snobby reasons, they just were like, so much of of what I do comes from the audience, from my connection and reaction and how I react to that energy from the audience. And if they're not there, 
that terrifies me. And I was like, I agree, but I like attention. So <laughs> I love money. So I just decided to go for it. And, you know, it did feel really weird at first. It felt very strange to just do comedy or poetry into a void. Or even now, it feels weird that I'm talking into this laptop with all my, you know. Um, but I, what I would tell myself is I would say, Baruch, pretend you finally made it and you're on a television sitcom and you're being filmed <laughs> live on stage, but you know the studio audience isn't there. So you just have to trust your joke and trust your acting ability and trust that it lands and <laughs> pause for applause. And even though the audience, so that's what I would tell myself that I, I would pretend to hear the audience's laughter, pretend to hear their reaction you, you know even though it wasn't there and I feel like that kind of helped me a little bit and, and you can tell the performers that have done that and aren't you know but I've seen people do like one woman I did a comedy show with or I saw her do a comedy show she asked uh the host to give her main host privileges so she went through each little camera and did crowd work through zoom Wow, that's creative. Hot guy 95, turn your camera on. I'm going to see what you look like. Hey, what's up? Wow, your kitchen's dirty. So what are you doing today? She was, I need to find her name and tell y'all her name. She she was so funny and did crowd work through Zoom. I'm not that creative. I mean, what I've been able to do, I just did a solo show at Portland Center Stage. And uh, I literally had to turn my room into a theater. I mean, I don't know if you can see it, but like I've hung... Yeah. This thing across my room. So, <laughs> but I have like five different ones. So there can be variety. I can hang a yellow glitter curtain behind me, a red glitter curtain behind me, yeah. all of the books in my bookshelf to prop my laptop up in different ways. I've, I've had to buy different lights to <laughs> light myself. Um, and so for the solo show, we had to create a backstage. Like we hung several curtains up one was above my bed where all my like props and piñatas and costumes were which I called the green room and so (laughs) that was there and then there was another curtain separating the backstage so that I could change back there and walk back there and then there was the main red curtain that we could pull back for my entrances and exits (laughs) and uh I had to move my couch like we propped my couch up against the window. We like almost taped all my windows shut to have better control of the lighting. And uh, yeah, just had to get very creative <laughs> as to where everything went and where I kept things for the show. Um, we also had like rehearsals here, uh, all virtual, you know, so I've, I've, I've had to become very adaptable to, you know, performing. I, I, I've been borrowing mics from people. You just... Just ask who has something and <laughs> they can drop it off or if you can pick it up. That's kind of how I've, I've been able to just keep doing, you know, shows on, via Zoom. And, and also, like, I think, I think people will see, if people see you put extra effort into your performance, like, uh, I'll use the camera however I can. I'll even, like, do, I'll move the, ca- I'll move the laptop around if I'm doing, like, a funny, wacky poem or a comedy set. I mean, <clears throat> one time... During a performance, I in the middle of the poem, I talked about dancing. So I just picked up my camera and my laptop and just danced around the room with it. I, I feel like people notice that if you try to use everything in your arsenal or everything in your kitchen, keep them engaged with you, 
then they'll invite you to the next gig or to the next show. Um, and I always think I bomb. My friends hate yeah. that about me. They think it's stupid. They think I'm asking for or fishing for compliments or whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I just, unless I, ha- unless I get a standing ovation, then I feel like I failed. Um, and you can't get any ovations on Zoom. So I feel like I fail all the time. Oh my God, I so relate to that. <laughs> right. And it's not like, it, it's not beating yourself up. It's one of my uh, people I admire is a writer named Eduardo C. Corral. And he said, always keep self. He said, he said something like, some of the best writers keep self doubt as a little person in their shirt pocket. They don't let them take over. They don't let them get so big you can't handle it. But they stay in your shirt pocket so that they keep you humble enough that your art is a good product, that that people don't feel like they're getting art from this, like, pompous, big-headed, my art is perfect. Because nobody likes that. <clears throat> Some of those people right. go very far. I've, I've seen people go very far who literally think their art is diamonds. I the most I can say about my art is that you'll at least have a good you'll have fun but I've never been like my poetry is gold (laughs) (laughs) my comedy is the best comedy Uh, you know I I don't think that's comedy words right yeah I I think I'm loud Uh, most of the time I'm probably the loudest guy in the room or the the grossest guy in the room although I, I think my stuff isn't even that gross. I just get descriptive. Like there's comedians who are like, and then I pooped all over the poop of the poop on the poop and then the vomit. And then I'm over here just describing a blowjob and they go, oh, Baruch is a risque sexual comic. I'm like, am I a sexual comic? You know, I feel like something wonderful about the Bay in particular, like the scene there is just so like, it's so nurturing even even while challenging the hell out of like uh, performers who are often you know brushed to the side like women performers who you know who do some some comedy and some you know some kind of maybe more thoughtful material but also something that's more sexual and then it's not they don't get pigeonholed in the same way that um you know in other places I think is not as is ready for for accepting people's multiplicity for some reason. I mean, I, and I don't want to like mansplain or anything, but one time I, I put up a, a video poem and uh, I got my first negative comment and it was something like, how fat can he be or something? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I showed it to my friend. I was like, look, I got my first comment. And she was like, oh, that's cute. This is the hundredth comment I've gotten today. And they were so awful. I'm not going to repeat them on this podcast, but I remember being, this is back in 2011, and just being so shocked at, and I was like, wait, that's just today? And she was like, yep, that's just today. (laughs) And she wasn't even like famous. She's just a local artist that was constantly putting out work on the internet. And I was like, that's when I got my first glimpse of like, how different it is being an artist in the world when you are male compared to being an artist in the world when you're uh, a woman. And just like, I, I also, I was at this uh, show, my friend is an art, uh, an actress. And after the show, she was asked to do a speech and she was so funny in this 10 minute speech. Everybody was crying. Her comedy 
st- her comedy timing was impeccable. And so I ran up to her afterwards. And I was like, you did not tell me you were funny. We're doing a comedy show. I'm going to put you in a bunch of comedy shows. How are you not a comedian? And she was like, oh, I know I'm very funny. I was going to be a comedian. And I decided not to. And I was like, why? And she was like, I don't like rape threats. And I just remember being so shocked, being like, what? What? I mean, what? And then my friend who was with me at the time was an actual woman comic. And she was like, oh, she's not wrong. Yeah, it's like once a week. And they were both were like, yeah, like once. How are you? And so they started sharing like rape threat stories. And I just remember my jaw was like on the floor hearing these real actual things men had said to them just because they were female comedians. And me just like, I went home like a dumb little man baby. And at the time I was with my partner, Wonder Dave, and I was like, I hate men and I hate the world. Mm. And I hate that our girlfriends have to go through this. And I'm going to cry a little. (laughs) It can be such like a terrifying space to be in. And we develop these sort of thick skins to deal with it. And then, of course, you hit the other side of people being like, well, she just doesn't care what people think. And it's like, well, you have to not care what people think or else you're going to cry yourself to sleep like every single night. You have to be able to be like, this person is just ignorant. This person just has, you know, just so much conditioning to unpack someday if they ever will. Like, I think one of the funniest comedians in the country right right now is Natasha Muse. And she is an out trans woman. She's a mother. She uh, is also queer, married to her wife for a, a, quite a while. And she is the funniest comedian in the city right now. But I, I'm sure she's been passed over for better gigs. And Irene, too, is one of the funniest women in the country, started in the Bay Area and now finally moved to L.A. And I can't wait to see her career take off. Mm-hmm. Chinese lesbian. Super cranky so and hilarious. hilarious. So hilarious. I love her a lot. Like, I, yeah, I, Irene was one of the first comics because I first started um, playing at the Berkeley Open Mic Night at the oh, Wow. Seeing Irene, um, I think it was at the Open Mic Night. It may have been one of the times I was there for the slam, but just completely slay and like be so understated and amazing about it. Yeah. And what I've learned from folks like, Irene and 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 all these all these other like comedians that are are is that you you, you know don't ignore it but also don't let it get in your way like mm-hmm. it is a thing it's a very real thing all these barriers but it's they're there and you just you have to keep plowing through to get what you know to get what you want and what you deserve and I do feel a little bad for artists that have a lot softer skin and who, but I also love that a lot of queer artists of color now, I feel like us younger, uh, older Gen Xers are such workhorses because that's how the environment was when we started. You know, we have to like work, work, work. What's next gig? What's next gig? Rest? Who rests? But I see these young artists like there's Freddie, who is an incredible transgender queer uh, rapper, musician, singer, songwriter. They take these long breaks and sometimes they scare you. I'm like, what? You're not performing for two months? What? That's like unheard of to me. I'm like, no, no, no. When's my next gig? They'll be like, you know what? I'm not performing for a week, for two weeks. Don't ask me to perform. They trust their themselves. They, I, I see all these young queer artists just trusting their talent and trusting that their bodies come first and taking these like 
long social media breaks, I can't put my phone down for two minutes. I mean, eventually I do because I am glued to my phone, but also not that glued. To, I, I'm, one, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an Aquarius. So I, I luckily, if, if you take my phone away, I'm just going to draw unicorns and, you know, think about clout because I'm such an Aquarius <laughs> that way. What's, you know? when's your birthday? <laughs> uh, February 13th. I'm the 15th. I'm the 15th. Oh, yay! You're an Aquarius, too. Yeah. Yay. yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just got stoked to well, see another I mean, Aquarius. You know how we are. We're oh, so yeah. spacey. Oh. You know, we're just like, <laughs> those clouds look beautiful. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Aquarius. We're also weirdos. Aquarians are weirdos. But we're very nice, polite weirdos. <laughs> yeah. We're good at entertaining ourselves, too, and making making shit happen. So yeah, We definitely are. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. When I was young, my yeah. mother would be like, no television. And I would be like, cool, I'm just going to stare at this wall and talk to my imaginary friends. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, it's good for me to work with Emily because she's a Virgo. So it's like a nice, oh, yeah. very nice counterbalance. I love Aquarians because I'm not floaty enough. I'm always like, um, let's figure out the practical aspects of this creative work that we're doing. <laughs> she made us spread. She to just enjoy the funness. Enjoy the floatiness and the unicorns and the clouds, which, which I, I love. Oh, we, we, we need those folks. Aquarians need those yeah. folks to, like, help us get shit done. <laughs> but we're also <laughs> good followers. So if we have a good, like, base telling us, like, which way to go, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know? totally. totally. <laughs> I feel like the mutual aid networks of the future, um, you know, with our next evolutionary phase, which is all going to be based on mutual aid networks, gonna know each other's you know signs and strong suits and uh and be able to you know organize the revolution in a way that the stars would would condone very (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah when i went on tour with uh this uh company called uh the the tour was called sister spit it was like a queer poetry tour last year um they all were about that they all were about their signs and their other signs and what their signs meant and uh at every show the show runner would be like i know audiences are just like us they feel our vibes they're into astrology so we challenge you to guess our signs as we perform and these audiences love that and a lot of these like witchy queer audiences would get it totally right <laughs> would just be like libra scorpio uh, sagittarius <laughs> and that last chubby guy aquarius and like i'd be like how did you know it's <laughs> just so funny how some of these people just from how we performed and how our personalities were on stage would just like get it like right away <laughs> oh my god i love it having a great time and I lost track of time and um I before we go like a million hours more I would love to hear you talk about your show Love in the Time of Piñatas because I think that is just an absolutely wonderful title and I love it and I would love for you to talk about what you mentioned which is working on queer latino superheroes I want to know more about about this reality that's being birthed yeah, well, Love in the Time of Piñatas is a solo show I've been working on since 2000, I believe, 17 was when I did the first workshop. It's basically, it's two things. It's a love letter to immigrants and a love letter to, I feel, marginalized folks who have felt that the world is constantly trying to beat them up, whether verbally or physically. And it's you know, one of the pieces that sometimes I keep in the show, sometimes it's it's a very, like, growing, changing piece. There's a song in it, uh, To All the Piñatas That Will Hit You Back. 
it, a lot of the metaphors are like, you know, if you feel like you're so glittery and so beautiful and so colorful that people just get angry and want to break that up to get into your candy, you can hit them back. You can dodge. You can get even more glittery, but don't, you know, a lot of the messages of that show are to cover yourself with more glittery paper, more paper mache and make yourself pretty, as pretty as you want to be, you know, because a, a lot of the show explores what being a queer little kid was like. Cause just, I feel like so much of my coming out was like, I'm out and I'm going to look forward and I'm just going to ignore all these feelings and anger I have towards all the people that tried to literally kill me when I was young, just cause I like my little pony. So a lot of the show is exploring what it means to be a little boy who likes pretty things. Cause in Mexico at the time in the eighties, that was not okay. You know, at first that was what the show was all about. It was mostly just that, like uh, exploring what it's like to be an immigrant in the last four years with a president who is consistently saying terrible things about you, not just you as an immigrant, but little immigrant children and immigrant mothers and just like, all the blaming that immigrants get. <laughs> so a lot of the show explores that. Uh, when I first did it, uh, I, I had a full production with Epic Party Theater and we got the clapping man, which was lovely from the SF Chronicle. The opening number was, I'm here to take your jobs. And it was a song and dance number about all the jobs I've stolen in the <laughs> entire time I've been in this country. And it was you know, a, a funny piece, you know, about how I'm going to steal all your jobs. I'm going to steal all your boyfriends and husbands and eat all the donuts I want. Cause si se puede. Um, and then the more I worked on the show, the more it was also, it was uh, of course about my family. You can't have an immigrant show without talking about your immigrant parents. Uh, and then, and the more I worked on it, the more it was, it turned into half of the show focuses on toxic masculinity and how, when you're, a dude you do get all the dude privilege that comes with being a dude but you also have the lovely experience of getting you know hit in the face with a bat called toxic masculinity from age four till till you're an adult where it's like you're constantly if you're in that macho environment if you're weak you get beat up it's in mexico it's like you either get fucked or you're fucking something and that's something that I've heard as a kid, even like, you know, you don't ever let people get you down. You punch them first. And it was tough watching my dad from a young age, seeing him as my dad go through that and struggle with that and, and, and watching him just be completely transformed by it. You know, he wasn't just being beat up by toxic masculinity. It was inside of them. He was swimming in it. And I watched it destroy his relationship with my mother. I watched him destroy his relationship to his work, to his job, to his coworkers, to the point where like, so a lot of the show is about that. And it's about how he turned it around, which to this day is like the shock of my life. How much this man decided one day to not let that beat him. Because it almost did. <laughs> it, almost, it almost did. You know, we, we don't talk enough about... Um, mm male suicide, men that kill themselves a lot in this country. Um, you know, people don't talk that much about that. And so I somehow have had the miraculous experience of watching my dad one day decide to fight against it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it wasn't even a fight. He just had to let it go. So, uh, so the second half of the show 
is about that. It's about not giving up on those men in your life. It's a very white, queer rhetoric to, you're queer, you've come out, your family doesn't support you, leave them. Never talk to them again. Fly to another state and never let them in your life, even for a second if they don't agree with who you are. Well, that's a very white coming out. It's a very white, queer story that has been in queer movies and plays. And I feel that as a Mexican man, I couldn't do that. As a Mexican person, you know, when I was young, my mother would not call the cops on my dad. He would do things that we were like, I was like, we need to call the cops. And even before it was in the national dialogue in the 90s, she would be like, if we call the cops on your dad, they are going to kill him. He's the darkest skin out of all of us. He's, they're just going to see an angry Mexican man and they're going to kill him. And she said, if one day I go crazy and I start pulling out my hair and punching myself in the face, are you going to give up on me? And I would be like, mm, no. She was like, well, we can't give up on your dad then because he's struggling right now. His mental health is not where it's supposed to be. And unfortunately, that led to years of awfulness. But I do see toxic masculinity as a disease. As a disease. I, and some people, it is a part of them. But I feel a lot of immigrant men, a lot of Latino men, a lot of black men of color, it's something that's just been shoved down their throats. And, and, and we can't just throw them away. We can't just like label these men as the bad guy, which they often are. And they do things that are bad and it needs to be stopped. And your safety comes first. You know, my mother's safety came first, so she divorced him. And I didn't talk to him for years. But I also feel like had I just given up on him, it would have been worse for me. Like I would have had to live in a world without a dad, even an abusive one. And the second part of the show is about how we both somehow found our ways back to each other. Like I saw the little pieces that he was trying to do the little peace signs he was trying to throw at me the little like uh one time my car broke down I wasn't speaking to him at the time but there was no one else I could call it was before cell phones and I only had his number memorized so from a payphone, I called him at 2 a.m <laughs> near the Novato exit on the 101 and <laughs> without saying how come you haven't talked to me for years you know are you still he just was like where are you I was like, somewhere near the Novato exit. And he would be like, all right, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find you. And he somehow found me. Uh, you know, we drove, you know, we drove to my mother's house so I could call a, a, you know, a tow truck or whatever. I remember what happened. But out of nowhere, he reaches behind him and he gives me a rainbow flag. <laughs> I say, what is this? Like, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought he was going to make like a, a fag joke or something. I thought I was going to punch him. And so I at first was like, what is that? And he was like, it's, uh, it, it's for gay things. <laughs> he just gave it to me. <laughs> and, and I almost said, what the fuck am I going to do with a rainbow flag? Who the fuck gives their gay stuff? I, like, I, thought it was a, I thought he was trying to pull a joke, but instead I was like, thank you. Because I, I saw that he was trying. And that started our journey towards, and now I'm like close, as close as I've, uh, closer than I've ever been with my dad. I just hung out with him yesterday. He loves my ex. He still wants me to get back together with him. Um, and so the show is really, the, half of the show is about that, is about just that toxic masculinity that takes our male family members away. Sometimes if you try a little hard or very hard or make a bunch of sacrifices or you know, put yourself in a little bit of danger, some people can 
change. I mean, everybody hates this musical, but it was one of my favorite musicals in the world. Uh, Carousel is an old, like old musical that half of the music is just terrible and unlistenable to. But I remember watching it when I was 19 and just crying the whole time because it was about a terrible person that was trying to be really good, even though he couldn't. And even though, spoiler alert, he dies at the beginning of the musical, he's in purgatory and he's still trying. <laughs> he's still, he still wants one more chance to go down to earth to try to be nice to his daughter. And he still fails. He still fails. He, he fails. But because he tried so hard, they, you know, you get to see this journey of this dude who was a terrible person and hit his wife and then, you know, ends up in purgatory. But he but he tries. The whole musical is about how he wants to be a good person. <laughs> and so I feel like that's kind of what my my solo show is, you know, is about. Um, and then the other thing, the Latino superhero thing, it's called We Can Be Heroes. And it's been on hiatus for such a long time. <laughs> Basically, I grew up reading X-Men comic books. I'm a giant comic book nerd. I'm a gi- I was loving superheroes before it was cool, before it was in the movies and everything. Um, from the early, early, late 80s, early 90s, I was a big X-Men fan. And just like everything else, it was super white with one or two people of color. You know, there's Storm and Bishop, and Jubilee, and, uh, you know, uh, all these other X-Men of color. Uh, But there was only one Latino X-Men, and he was never really an X-Men. He was an X-Force, which was a side X-Men team. Uh, Richter is a a Mexican X-character, but he's also gay. So when he came out, I was like, oh, my God. And so uh, I decided to – I wrote a grant with MACLA, which is an incredible organization in San Jose. They're like a museum slash performance space slash art space that focus on Mexican-American and Latino and Chicano art. And so they called me one day and they were like, hey, do you want to do a project with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. What do you – they were like, well, do you have any ideas? And I literally just said, you guys are going to pay me too? write a superhero team that's all gay and all Latino. And I'm going to ask other writers to write these characters, create these characters with me. And then I'm going to write the main story. And then we're going to give it to an artist to create a graphic novel. And so after the graphic novel has been made, we are going to shipwreck style perform it live in front of an audience. So they're going to see the, the art projected onto hopefully a movie screen And me and some actors are going to read it out loud. So people are going to be able to see the images, see the superhero saving the day while they hear our voices doing each, you know, like, meanwhile, back at the food truck, you know, like, uh, so it's called, we can be heroes. I, it's, it's, it's a huge project. It's taken me a while because at first I had to find the other writers. I wanted to get other Latinos who weren't like me. I, I wanted to make sure that I had, uh, that I work with at least two of the writers. I wanted to be trans. I wanted one of them, you know, one or two of them to be Afro-Latino. I wanted them to, you know, I wanted women. You know, I wanted, I want, I wanted to hit as many aspects of Latino culture as I could. Two, no, I picked two people that I had already worked with, and then I did a contest and picked the other writers from that contest. And so they created the characters. They wrote short stories. Some of these characters are so amazing. One of them is a trans uh, Latina who is a shapeshifter, but she only 
She loves to shapeshift into different monsters, and that's how she fights crime. Mostly she uh, kills people who kill trans women, uh, which is one thing that she loves to do. And she used to be an assassin and then decided to be a hero because she fell in love. One of them is named Sway, and Sway uh, was created by a writer named Caitlin Hernandez, who is a blind woman and teaches. She teaches math to blind kids. And so Sway is also blind. Her power, though, is if she touches you, she can drain anxiety and pain and fear from you. And if she touches you for a little longer, she can heal any wounds that you may have on your body. But she's also very dangerous because she can store all of that pain inside of her body. And if someone attacks her, she can transfer that pain to them. And so at the, in one of the stories, uh, an old man has a heart attack on the bus she's on. And when no one's looking, she touches his leg because she tries to be incognito and she absorbs his heart attack and saves them. And then later that day, someone attacks her at a bank. And so she touches them and that person feels the heart attack that she absorbed from that guy the day before. Um, so all of these characters are great and they're all gay. I love that they're all queer. They're bisexual, queer, trans, you know, one's a lesbian. Uh, of course, my character is a chubby gay Mexican who loves to have sex. And uh, all the short stories are written. The characters uh, have been drawn. And now I just, uh, I started writing the scripts last 2019 and I was going strong and then I got cancer. So that really derailed me. It derailed me a lot. And then uh, when I found out I was going to be okay and that I was doing a lot better and my cancer, I was on, they were like, you're good. I was like, yes. 2020, I'm going to get back to work on We Can Be Heroes. It's going to be amazing. And then the pandemic came and punched all of us in the face and caused a lot of tragedies. So it's been it's been weird. I, I, I thought I was going to work on it during the pandemic. I think Makla might never work with me again. I'm joking. They love me. I, I mean, I hope they do. They've been very patient. But trying to write a superhero story while all of the things have been happening in the world from Trump to the protests to the fires to the script has changed so much. At one point, they were, you know, helping out a shooting. A shooting happened in one of the conferences they went to, and so they had to stop the shooters, and then other things happened in the world. So I changed the script to them beating up ICE agents. They were just beating up ICE agents left and right and liberating immigrants out of cages. And then at one point, they were beating up Trump. They were just beating up Trump and his entire family. And it, was just, it was just one of those things where like, I kept getting creatively blocked, not because of my inability to write, but because I just felt so much pressure, like so much pressure because superhero stories usually are always mirrors of what's happening at the time in society. Like, you know, like Superman was created by Jewish people, two Jewish kids at a time where being Jewish in this country was very, I mean, it's still dangerous, but, you know, back then, two Jewish immigrant kids invented Superman, if you can believe it, you know. It's tough because it's so close to my heart, and I feel like there's it's just so much pressure. Also, Latinos, we are very hard on each other, you know, full story. We love to criticize <laughs> each other. We love, it's, it's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I came up with Donde Esta Mi Gente, because I wanted to create a space where we could be kind to each other, where we can root for each other, where we can support each other and not be so, because we're criticones. Criticon means someone who just loves to criticize 
It's like you have a room for all Latinos. It's like having a room full of drag queens. They're all going to start like <laughs> each other, you know, but we're also full of love. And, and, I, and, and so that's, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to write from love. I'm trying to write from, it's just so close to my heart. Superhero stories are so close to my heart. And these are all queer Latino characters. That's why it's taken me a little longer. The artist who's going to create the art is waiting for that script. I'm, I'm going to try to finish it this week, to be honest. Like this week, I'm trying to finish it so that I can finally draw all the drawings um, and I can get notes from the other writers. But yeah, once it's done, I'm going to be so proud of it. And we're going to have five new, actually six, six new amazing queer Latino superheroes that hopefully folks will get to buy the book, read all about them. And buy the, I mean, I want them to get T-shirts, trading cards we're going to make trading cards hopefully and i want you know queer little kid out there who's latino or an immigrant to be able to be like holy crap there's a comic book i can read where everyone in it is gay and latino that's amazing yes. but that's one of the reasons why i've had such i've had such like i've struggled with the script because that's uh that's a lot <laughs> You know, like, it is a lot. We're and, and you know what though, like by the time this episode airs, um, you're gonna have that script done. Yes, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna so, eat my pot tummy right now and I'm gonna start writing. <laughs> it's Perfect. gonna it's gonna happen. I mean, you've said it out loud and you've said it to us, and we are we we're pretty good manifestors, yeah. Sarah. Yes, and yes, I, yes. I feel yeah. like we are both pretty decent at it. Although I have not yet manifested my stolen car returned back yet i heard um, about that oh no yeah <laughs> we're, we're working on that maybe i'll manifest a better car or something who knows yeah. but either way i'm really really excited to see your superheroes and to yeah. share them oh, all amazing. around fuck yeah like that the the queer utopia uh <laughs> that we all should be dreaming and, <laughs> and being <laughs> i i love the this is like even though these times are so like dark and insane for so many ways, like seeing the artists and the the creators that I know out here in the world continuing to do super inspiring and fabulous and like powerful work, it uh, means the world and it keeps me going. So I'm really happy that you're able to do this. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Where can people find you? Well, I invite everyone to please follow me on Twitter. I don't have any Twitter followers. It's at Baruch is on fire. Uh, like the roof is on fire, except it's my name is on fire. I'm also on the Instagram at just Baruch Porras Hernandez, at Baruch Porras Hernandez. I'm on there. I also, I think I only have like two followers. Please follow me. I need more <laughs> followers on all the social medias. If you... Don't mind me posting about my art gigs all day to the point where it might drive you insane. Friend me on mm -hmm. Facebook. I talk a little too much on Facebook. And uh, I think that's it. I have a website I rarely use. Talk about websites. It's like <laughs> I'm finding a lot of more artists that are making it don't have websites. They just mm -hmm. rely on social media. It's weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> websites, are, websites are old. Social media is the new websites, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like blog. Right like who has a blog anymore? I know. <laughs> I know. It's quaint. It's like, oh, do you also have a landline? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so please follow me on social media. I also have two books of poetry out. 
Uh, one is called Lovers of the Deep Fright Circle. If you like funny poems about dicks and food and San Francisco, I have a more, I guess, serious book of poetry called uh, I Miss You Delicate. If you want some of that sad boy Aquarius poetry and immigrant stories and magical realism, you can buy that one. They're both through Sibling Rivalry Press. Sibling Rivalry Press is one of the, I believe, top gay poetry publishers in the country. They're amazing. I love everything they do. Teaming up with KQED, and we're going to do a whole year of Donde Esta Mi Gente uh, showcases through, there'll be virtual, and as soon as we can do it legally, they'll be also live here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's going to be a bi-monthly uh, performance showcase of Donde Esta Mi Gente through KQED, or sponsored by KQED. So that'll be all of 2021, and maybe further if they renew another contract. But yeah, I'm going to book uh, Latinx performers and comedians and singers and poets and Hopefully, because of the pandemic, I'll be able to book people uh, in other parts of the world uh, because I'm also doing it through KQED and Español. So half of the performances are going to be in Spanish. Uh, and they're all going to be hosted by me. And I guess that's that's a, that's kind of it. I think that's all. Most of the other stuff will probably be in the past by the time this airs. But I am so happy to get to have, I totally, the time flew. I Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah, thank you. It was so lovely thank to meet you. you. Aquarius power. Aquarius power. Yay, Aquarius. Well, you both have a good this night. This is your age. So We're in it. Yeah. yeah. Give big hugs and kisses to the Bay for me. It's been a while. I love all of you wonderful weirdos in the Bay. <laughs> I'll be down there again someday when it's Yay. safe, I guess. All right. Uh, have a great night. Right. Have a great night. Bye. Talk to you thank soon. you so much for everything. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah. See you too. So yeah, he was lovely. <laughs> Gosh, he said so many cool things. I really liked what he had to say about the idea of toxic masculinity and redemption. And because sometimes I feel like the way we talk about that stuff, especially as women, and it's understandable that we would be less feel very unforgiving towards it sometimes. But I do feel like if we're all going to come to some kind of solidarity and realize the same systems that hurt us, hurt men and hurt queer people. I think that idea of giving people the space to grow is really important. Yeah, it really speaks to how how doing that work lifts up everyone. Like I understand the arguments around identity politics and tokenizing people and everything, but when it comes to like addressing specific issues, you know, doing those that that work that comes out of like recognizing the differences of our identities definitely I think leads to more open-mindedness and empathy all around. When you can do it in a way that is about a solidarity project. It's like all of these different things are layers that play into our experience. So we shouldn't deny any of those layers, but we also shouldn't some, maybe sometimes make them the only thing that is our point of reference. Depending on your identity, yeah. sometimes it's going to be a really strong point of reference. So I think it's all about finding that balance, which I think is sometimes frustrating to me on the leftist, seeing like the identity politics people and the class politics people fight. It's like it's both and it can be both and we can right. approach it intelligently right and there it's like we have identity politics because of you know because of class conflict yeah and exactly um, like basically class class conflict is what creates all of the other um conflicts as far as i have 
been able to, you know, see and as have as I've read, but mostly just as I've experienced. Class conflict breeds all the other forms of identity conflict because people have to be competing and divided if anyone's going to exploit and profit off of us. When your goal is not to profit necessarily, like obviously you want to support yourself, but if your goal is not to, you know, be in an exploitive system, then like you almost can't be in one. You like inherently you're just not driven to do the the things that exploit people. You're driven to do the things that lift people up. Yeah, I mean that's one thing that's interesting for me to think about in this book book I just read called Poetry from the Future by I don't think I'm going to pronounce his name right, Sreko Horvat. Um, he talks about that creating sort of islands within capitalism and how we do that and how effective is it when a capitalism is, you know, the big container to kind of create containers within the container. But I like Brooke talking about, you know, the community and how people were taking care of each other and the artists, especially, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was scrambling. I mean, everyone's still scrambling. But before everyone was getting on or people, some people were getting unemployment and, you know, some which some people aren't, which is the other thing, you know. It's, um, it's interesting to see how we're like normalizing the pandemic because it's, it's not gone. It's, we're all, we've all just sort of broken, I think, to where we just can't process everything anymore. I mean, that's what poetry is for. And that's what comedy is for when we, when you just can't process shit. And I think that's, that's partially why it's so valuable to create a space for people who are the most affected by all this shit to, to speak their comedy and their poetry. Yeah, it's so weird, the pandemic. I've even noticed with myself, it's not like I'm going out without a mask and I'm still being really careful and still pretty much quarantining. But I feel like I'm not as afraid as I was at the beginning of it. It's almost just become like the normal backdrop that that's just kind of how it how it is now. And I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. I mean, I guess it's good I'm not so stressed out. It's not making me cocky or making me want to take risks unnecessarily, but it is now just seems really normal. (laughs) It's odd. Our brains really will normalize and adapt to anything because that's how they help us function. It's like, well, I can't be constantly processing the newness of my environment and still like keeping myself alive. I I mean, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a, a brain scientist or not a, a brain <laughs> a psychologist <scientist>. <laughs> i'm not a brain a brain knower of stuff i don't <laughs> i'm not a brain knowledge haver person <laughs> very clearly i don't even have the word for anything anymore it's weird going That's into like that. the colder season when we're all gonna be you know a little bit more isolated anyway thinking about what it's gonna be like going through this through the winter and coming out the other side in the spring at the pandemic the isolation it's gonna be really really new I think for all of us to just like I feel like I'm constantly like assessing new shit all the time right now where is before the pandemic, even though my life is not like super conventional, I felt like there was a certain amount of stuff I could put on autopilot. And now I feel like there's kind of nothing that can be on autopilot. 
and like everything is new and everything is changing and I'm I'm just as on edge with Joe Biden as the president as a president elect as I was when Trump got elected and now I feel this additional weight of like being in a a minority of people who's feeling that way while all the people around me are celebrating and I'm like I'm so sorry I can't join your celebration I really want to yeah I mean I'm in the same boat I mean I'm trying to be like okay people have the space to celebrate and feel relieved like we were saying especially if you're from a targeted community I think it's very understandable if you're a Rich white liberal, I mean, your life didn't get any worse, and it's not going to get any worse, so. Well, and that's, like, the thing, right, is if you're a rich white person, then regardless of politics, the system is working for you. Yeah, and, that's, and it's designed that's to work the, for you. Un, exactly, and that's the sort of unspoken truth that, you know, when we see, you know, speaking of, you know, class privilege, when we see people with financial stability talking about what, how relieved they are to not have an embarrassing president anymore. We need to hear them very clearly as saying they are relieved to not have an embarrassing president anymore. Like, there was nothing else about this administration that was harming them. It was just that he was embarrassing. They had to have bad feelings all of a sudden about their government. Right, because it was impossible to ignore. And now Joe Biden is going to step in and be not embarrassing and do the same things. And there's it's either going to be rationalized or ignored. That frightens me just as much, if not more, than um, a Trump administration And I feel, I don't like to be Debbie Downer and shit, but it's like, I feel like all the people who are the most targeted are going to be even more targeted. And I mean, I include myself, you know, I'm a a queer woman veteran. Like I can, I can kind of sort of fit into the status quo. Like I have a tattoo around my neck, like to a certain extent, I can't like play the game, but you know, to a certain extent I can. And so, but I feel like a lot, a lot of people who can't, who can't walk outside and change the color of their skin or the way they speak or their educational background or the family they grew up in or whatever. And these policies that Joe Biden is undoubtedly going to be pursuing that are going to be not embarrassing to the wealthy people in this country on both sides of the aisle, but they're going to be you know, incredibly harmful, but in much, in much less overt ways. They're just like the ways that, like you said, people are going to stop paying attention. I'm hopeful that maybe people won't or just enough people won't that it'll make a difference this time around. Um, I'm hopeful by the fact that I feel like progressives have already gotten ahead of the narrative a little bit. Like this is not the end of the fight. As much as there's, of course, the usual left punching and, oh, Joe Biden ran too far to the left. That's why the numbers are so close. It's like, no, every single rep that ran on Medicare for All won. Every single one that didn't lost. Um, $15 minimum wage won in red states. Marijuana run in red states. Like, it's reality is proving them wrong. It's just how to build a movement based on solidarity, you know, across all these different movements and issues in a way that actually is maybe something outside of that two-party binary altogether. Yeah, like reality isn't binary or partisan. It's, you know, it's fluid and it's multiple. It's, 
you know, reality is a, a comedian and a poet and a painter and a performer and and an activist and everything all in the same body and many bodies. And I, I feel like, honestly, I feel like the next generation gets that even more than the artists and the weirdos of our generation in the ones before. So that gives me a whole lot of hope. Like, I feel like the, the format that Baruch is using is going to be normal for the next generation, especially just understands the a need to lift each other up from what I've seen. And they're learning that from like the compassionate overachievers and, you know, like the, the, the yeah. people who are, who are getting to these places of success and like turning around and reaching their hand back and saying like, here, come on, get up here. This is, let's all see this view together. Yeah. Baruch's kind of a trailblazer in that way, but you know, he's an Aquarius. That's what we do. We just, we just, we just Aquarius all over the damn place and wait, wait for everyone else to catch up. It's so annoying. <laughs> it's so, I'm, I'm very impatient. So I'm down to be on your trail. Keep on a blazing. What the Folk is co-hosted, edited, and produced by Sarah Baranowskis and Emily Yates. Featured poems in this episode are The Trees They Hate the Birds the Most, and Oh, the Places You Will Go Fearing for Your Life While People Do Drugs by Baruch Porras Hernandez, courtesy of The Artist. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again. And until then, please stay safe. Watch out for zombies, both literal and metaphorical, because it's 2020 and you never know. Now to take us out, here's Oh, the places you will go, fearing for your life while people do drugs, by Baruch Porras Hernandez. Like over 10 years ago, and I just, you know, the city started to change so drastically, and it was so scary to watch all of my friends just move away and disappear. Uh, it's just still happening, and Evan has worked so hard to keep poetry and the arts here alive in this beautiful city. So let's all please give him one more round of applause. Thank you, guys. Alright, if you can believe it, I had more glitter on my beard, but then I walked outside and the wind slammed me in the face and blew most of it off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, my first piece is titled, All the Places You Will Go, Fearing for Your Life While People Do Drugs. Tiny poems inspired by writing the buses of San Francisco near me. San Francisco, richest city in the West, Muni, still a pile of crap. Rolling up, rolling down, Gatorade bottle full of pee. Metaphor for life on the 33. Young man stretching to reach the pole, showing me his abs, killing me softly. Meth head on the five, opens broken laptop. The 49, like the man who puked on you during sex, then asked to spend the night. The 14, the cute busboy who stole your wallet, but also stole your heart. 
24, a room full of white gay men screaming, yes, for fucking ever. Bees in my eyes, screams the crackhead ruling on the 12. Who needs the older and scream the teenagers on all the fucking buses? Scream the douchey techie on the 44 O'Shaughnessy. I don't know if that rhymes. <laughs> hey, don't sit there. I peed, said the old lady, smiling on the 43. <laughs> Mione, first place, I saw two men holding hands as a child, making me feel less alone. Mm. Two old gay dudes talk about how the city has changed. Both agree, ah, it's still beautiful. <laughs> Nighttime. Old gay guy tells me, oh, that's the house where I lost Fred. And then grows quiet. One day, we might all be ghosts, missing how it feels to be on a bus going home. One day, I will be a ghost, riding on the bus, checking out all those men's butts. <laughs> Two bombs and I fight. Driver pulls over to eat tuna salad calmly and watch. <laughs> Racist old lady wants my seat in the back because black teenagers in the front scare her. My answer was, no, bitch. <laughs> like jewels that went up his bare muscled legs, probably up his tiny navy blue jogging shorts, and then the rest was just a landscape of, dear God, why am I breathing so hard? <laughs> also, why are some dudes caps making me lose my breath? I had never noticed how interested I was in men's caps up to this point in my little life since I was 12, but never, uh, but dear Lord, dear Lord, now I wanted to learn everything about this very important muscle body part. <laughs> And other things. He was probably 20 and had wavy brown hair and was panting. He had just probably gone on a very long jog. His body was covered in shiny sweat, making his skin glow. His nipples were pink and his entire torso was working hard to get air into his body. And my body, as well, completely betrayed me. I right away noticed my mouth was open. I closed it and tried to turn away, but he walked right next to me to stand in line to order something at Cafe Estrada, where I was sitting drawing comic book superheroes while my dad read his Inglés Sin Barreras book. <laughs> I was 12, but not an idiot, and I knew that staring at an almost naked man was not socially or morally or religiously or in any way okay, but that body though, oh my god, and my little 12-year-old eyes were thirsty, my entire body was like betraying me, and I had to turn to look, to, I just was like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do, I just wanted to take them all in, then it happened. As I was drooling and drilling holes into his very flat, taut, yet soft-looking stomach, I got a whiff of his smell. The only way I can describe it, it was happy, youthful sweat. He was probably riding a runner's eye. Then I finally looked at his face, and he was smiling, and noticed me staring. And instead of getting mad, instead of screaming faggot at me like everyone at my middle school would, would have done, this probably sophomore at UC Berkeley winks at me. 
and walks away to order an Italian soda. Instant boner! I looked out the window wondering what the fuck had just happened, still holding my pen in the middle of drawing Jean Grey as the Dark Phoenix. My body had never betrayed me like that before. I have been called a faggot at school since before we even came to the US, but I thought it was just, you know, people being trash that they are, because I thought people were trash. I've never been comfortable around my fellow humans. I've never really understood them or trusted them. And then my father goes, what the fuck are you doing? I looked over to see my dad, no longer transfixed by his English sin barreras, which means English without barriers. I was caught. I was dead. He said, we need to go for a walk. We packed up our shit. This going for a walk meant walking through the UC Berkeley campus. We always walked through there because even though he was an engineer back in Mexico, we were immigrants, so now he worked on campus as a janitor. And the biggest reason was because he was determined for me to go there as a student in the future. Our walks were supposed to inspire me and get me used to my future alma mater, he would say. During the walk, he finally stops. It was night, it was dark. He got very serious. He said, I'm your father. I'm the only one in the entire world you can trust. You can tell me anything, anything at all. And I'll never, ever stop loving you, okay? You can trust me. Were you, were you checking out that guy in the coffee shop? The shirtless one? I froze. He got very serious. Are you attracted to men? Look, you can tell me. I won't tell anyone. Yes, I said, and immediately felt like the world was going to end. He was silent for what felt like 200 years, and finally said, you're very brave. You won't tell anyone? I begged, no. We walked back to the car in silence, and drove back home in silence. I wanted to cry, but I wanted to prove to him that I was brave. I, I wanted to cry because I was terrified, and also I was like, kind of happy that I had such a forgiving man as a father, one I could trust. When we got home, after I went to bed, he stops my mother in the hallway with a toothbrush in her mouth and says, we have a problem. Your son told me that he's a queer tonight and I, I need to know what you're gonna do about it because I don't know what I'm gonna do. I can't look him in the eye anymore. I don't know if he knew I was still awake. I could hear him, even though he was whispering. We stopped going to Cafe Estrada. I did not go to UC Berkeley. The end.